following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Good evening, friends. Today's reading is from the book of Nehemiah. That's chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and then chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing upon it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give, give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all, till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then Jesus, who lived near them, came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Let's pray. Lord, for the life-giving gift of Holy Scripture, we give you thanks. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts and minds that are open to your word, so that we might hear from you this evening. Amen. So previously on the book of Nehemiah, Sometime in the 5th century, in the Persian capital city of Susa, Nehemiah has heard report that Jerusalem is in a bad way. He is deeply dismayed, and he prays for a long time. Eventually, 
he works out that a suitable approach to the king, sad in the king's presence when he's never been sad before, and asking the right question at the right time, will open up the possibility of a long trip home to Jerusalem, where he is able to investigate the ruined state of the city's walls as he rides around at night. You see the trouble we are in, he says to his companions on the nighttime scouting trip. And they reply, let us start rebuilding. And that's where we left the story last week. This week we pick it up with the beginning of the actual work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. What is the first thing that Nehemiah is going to tell us? The first pointer to what this so-called good work will be? Some kind of visionary review of what the plan is? Some spiritual lightning bolt from on high that will speed them on their way? A PowerPoint presentation from Nehemiah on who will do what, along with detailed budget costings. Well, it turns out, none of that. The report cuts straight to, when the local bigwigs heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. I'm paraphrasing. The Bible doesn't actually call them the local bigwigs. I'm not actually sure what the Hebrew word for bigwig would have been. It names them as Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab which is just the kind of dispiriting list of unfamiliar names that gives Old Testament readings a bad name and makes us feel like we can't follow what's going on, so I'm just going to call them the local bigwigs. There's actually some discussion about whether these names and titles are designed to ridicule these people in some way. Calling someone a Horonite apparently was not altogether flattering, and maybe Nehemiah is gearing up to give as good as he gets here. I mean, I know I hate it when people say, oh, Richard, you horror knight. But anyway, I think I'll stick with big wigs. But the more important bit is the mocking and the ridiculing. How long did that take to go from let us start rebuilding to being mocked and ridiculed? No time at all. It's the very next verse here at the end of chapter 2. It's almost as if they had social media. Even then, friends, posts Nehemiah, let's rebuild. And there in the comments, piling in within a minute or two, come people posting back with, what planet is he on? I bet you haven't even got permission. Will these people never learn? Loser, who's going to pay for the curtains? And other phrases that I draw from the high caliber tone of recent political debate. That language of mockery and ridicule was prominent in the 5th century BC amid the broken down walls of Jerusalem, and it is prominent today, and we may be sure that it is never going away, at least in this life. To paraphrase Jesus, in this world you will have discouragement, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. He didn't actually say discouragement, uh, for that matter, he didn't talk about mockery or ridicule at that point. He talked of trouble or tribulation, but I think the point stands. And brothers and sisters, we do live in a perpetually discouraging world. Life in Durham in 2021, in the second year of the great virus, is not set up in a way that naturally encourages us in our Christian faith. Let's be honest. It's been a long time since we lived in a culture 
that was naturally encouraging to Christian faith, if indeed we ever did. And the story that the book of Nehemiah is telling here and in chapter 4 speaks pretty much directly into our situation. Nehemiah's first stab at responding, last verse of chapter 2, is to say that the God of heaven will give us success. He compares Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem to parish council members who have no authority here, imagining Nehemiah as Jackie Weaver just for a moment. And then we turn the page and suddenly we're into an epic list of names and places and who built what. Are you keeping up? We didn't read Nehemiah chapter 3, and I'm only going to say one thing about it after first briefly summarizing it. Through 32 verses of meticulous detail, we read about all those who worked in mini teams, building the wall and making repairs and installing beams and doors and bolts and bars and, say some, a new improved lighting system to help with evening services. And they're all singing, all dancing PA equipment with inbuilt Zoom capability. Well, with a map in hand, you can follow around the city in an anti-clockwise direction. This account of who built the fish gate, who built the fountain gate, and who built the dung gate, so-called because it's where they carried out all the dung from the city. And for those of you who have ever been to Jerusalem, I have to report that pretty much none of these gates can be related to the gates that you can find today around the old city, even where the names are the same since Jerusalem had different dimensions and layout back then. Anyway, the only thing I want to say about Nehemiah 3, apart from its impressive testimony to teamwork in some rather uninspiring and smelly locations, is that it seems to offer an overview of the whole of the rebuilding, presenting it as a done deal. In other words, this is, the kind, this is the kind of summary of the whole rebuilding of Jerusalem, which we've actually only just started reading about. And we will continue to read about it in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and so on. And that's actually quite an interesting move, because there is a whole lot more discouragement up ahead. I don't think that really spoils the plot, to tell you that. And yet here at the beginning of the rebuilding story comes this simple, painstaking record showing that they were in fact successful in all the work that they set out to do. So as we read on, we will see further trouble and difficulty coming their way. But we know, dear reader, we already know that God has this in hand, having vouchsafed to us up front that the city does get rebuilt. In a Bible where never a word is wasted and every turn of phrase has a purpose, I presume this is not just a clunky edit by someone who didn't grasp the story. It's deliberate. It's like a promise before the storm, an encouragement offered in the sure and certain knowledge that we are going to need one. So remember that the next time masonry falls off the chapel roof or our plans get met with mockery and ridicule. Bigwig Sanballat is not done. Chapter 4, he becomes angry and greatly incensed. And what does he do? He ridicules the Jews, i.e. the ones setting about the rebuilding. 
five quick questions he fires off as if this were a scene out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What are these feeble people doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? And so forth. Until bigwig Tobiah joins in, all very clever with the well-judged insult, the furious repost, the relentless mockery. Are they the ancient equivalent of a team of Fox News reporters? Hence verse 3. Even a fox could break down your wall of stones. A link that was strangely missed in all the commentaries that I consulted. Well, but all this torrent of abuse is just words. And so Nehemiah responds with words. A prayer cried out to God in verses 4 and 5. That is actually a lament of bitter proportions. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. And indeed they are. But then he goes on to say, turn back their insults on their own heads, praying that God would not let their sin be blotted out. In effect, do not forgive them. The last few words of this prayer can be taken in a variety of ways. Most likely the point is not that the builders themselves are insulted, but that in the presence of the builders, it is God himself who is insulted or indeed provoked to anger. So maybe we should say that all Nehemiah is doing is handing over to God the argument which his own enemies are in fact having with God. A kind of, Lord, it's really you they are angry with, so you should be the one to deal with this prayer. And it is certainly true that scripture persistently models and thereby suggests to us that when we are angry and hurt, we can take it directly to God in prayer and we do not need to try and water it down first, as if the idea was that you deal with it yourself, and then when you've made it respectable, you pray about it nicely, which would be a strange way to get God involved in our troubles when you think about it. Even so, and understanding all that, I do want to remind us of something that I said back when we looked at chapter 1, that the book of Nehemiah is not in our Bibles primarily so that we can learn to be like Nehemiah. And I am cautious about thinking that we are supposed to learn straightforwardly from this passage a model of praying when we are mocked and ridiculed. Though, as I say, we may well pray like this in our hurt and frustration, and we are in good company if we do. But do you recall that I said that the book of Nehemiah is first and foremost about God and secondly about Jerusalem as the place that God is building through Nehemiah as a home for God's people. And that the reasons why the book of Nehemiah is in the Bible are more likely to do with that, with what we are learning about God and about Jerusalem. And the next thing we learn on that score is that the bigwigs are not done yet. For all their first-class mockery, it turns out that the wall is going up and the gaps in the wall are being closed up. The word for gaps here is an obscure joke because it sounds like the word for what the foxes would do if they knocked down the wall in Tobias taunt. It's like saying that Nehemiah is making a mockery of the mockers or that they are foxed, in fact. You know, I think I knew going in that this wasn't really a joke 
worth explaining. But anyway, the point is that this time the bigwig troublemakers do more than just throw words at Nehemiah and co, but actually agitate to stir up physical trouble against them. And in return, where Nehemiah had met words with words in the first round of their standoff, this time he meets action with action. As we read, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. No more laments or crying out curses. This time it is pray and get a security detail in place. Nehemiah, man of action and man of prayer. In fact, man of action because he is a man of prayer. But we are not yet done with discouragement. While Sanballat, Tobiah and the rest continue to rage without, a new form of discouragement springs up within. Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, that's Nehemiah's own people, many of whom are in his workforce and on their way to the glory of being mentioned in that preemptive list that we noticed in chapter 3. Well, they offer what can only be called a downbeat assessment of their own situation. The workers are weary, the rubble is troubled, and we can't at all keep building this wall. And I put it in that rather strange way, because although this is somewhat disguised in most of our translations, this seems to have actually been a little song that they were singing. I have a Jewish Bible that prints it that way as a little lyrical lament. So how does that feel, Nehemiah? Already several workers down because they've had to be posted for guard duty. Now he finds that the ones still building are singing songs about how impossible it all feels. And even that is not the end of the discouragement with threats and rumors of threats piling up all the way to the last words in our reading today. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Well, sisters and brothers, wasn't reading the Bible supposed to encourage us? Really, what are we supposed to do with all this? But here's where I think we are most deeply helped by confronting stories like this at face value. As Nehemiah's faithful desire to work for God's glory stumbles its way through this intense discouragement. Look at what emerges. A story that reminds us that when we ourselves seek to serve God with our own work, and we face trials and troubles of many kinds, as we surely will and do, then just as Jerusalem was assuredly built up and made ready, recall that advance notice of success in Nehemiah chapter 3. So the new Jerusalem is assuredly built and made ready for us, and we will be welcomed in as good and faithful servants. And here is where I think it really helps to see the city of Jerusalem as having the starring role in this book. It is not in the image of Nehemiah that we find ourselves in this story, but as inhabitants of the city of God, to which all our efforts are contributing. And it is not, notice, 
Nehemiah and his co-workers who ever get mentioned in the New Testament, but the Jerusalem that they are rebuilding. And in many ways, all that Nehemiah hoped for in Jerusalem being raised from the ruins is what we ourselves now hope for in Jesus being raised from the dead. Jerusalem, the place where God would dwell, and all our hopes and longings about where God would dwell are met and found in Christ. Jerusalem, built to be the city of peace, and all our hopes and longings for peace are met and found in Christ. Jerusalem, where the name of God will be carried down through the ages, and this name will be handed over to the Son so that God's very identity is met and found in Christ. Jerusalem, focus of worship, now met and found in Christ, where the priests enacted atonement through sacrifice, now finally fulfilled in Christ. Jerusalem, wept over by Nehemiah and by Jesus himself, but raised to new life as we in turn look for the new Jerusalem in which we shall finally see God face to face. Well, if we have never experienced discouragement in our Christian lives, then I'm sure that tonight's passage will remain a complete mystery to us. But who really can say that? Who among us is not often and repeatedly worn down by similar sorts of troubles to those that Nehemiah faced so persistently? as he tried to make his contribution to the raising of God's city. So come back next week for the next episode in this series as we explore rebuilding in Nehemiah's time and our own. And in the meantime, hear once more these realistic yet life-giving words of Jesus. In this world, you will face opposition, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Lord, Nehemiah was a man just like us, trying his hardest, facing discouragement yet pressing on. And we too grow weary as our challenges seem to grow larger as we seek to press on. So lift our hearts to you and give us eyes to see and ears to hear as you lead us through this day, this week and this life. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, 
visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.